Blah, 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 everybody, and welcome to the Disenfranchised Podcast, where that podcast all about those franchises of one, those films that fancy themselves full-fledged franchises before falling flat on their face after the first film. I am your host, Stephen Foxworthy, and uh, joining me is uh, the host with the most. It's, uh, it's our good friend, Tucker. Hey, Tucker. Hi, Stephen. How's it going? It goes, man. It goes. That's cool. Brett That's is uh, Brett is currently on hiatus out in uh, out in the the wilds of Transylvania. He'll be back. Uh, he'll be back. I think probably toward the end of the month. Uh, but you'll be hearing his voice very soon. Don't even worry about it. Uh, because we're on vacation right now, Tucker. Woo! We are just chilling out, relaxing on the beach, kicking our feet up with uh, tall frozen cocktails in our hands, just enjoying the just the beautiful tropical weather right now. We're um, Tom Atkins in Night of the Creeps in his Hell dreams. yeah. Hell yeah. Maybe how he's just like on the beach having a good time. <laughs> Fuck yeah, I remember. God, I need to buy that movie. You should. I really should. I I had so much fun with that movie. Um, and speaking of which, we are currently on vacation. Because we're currently on vacation, we look, it, it's been almost three years and um, we've never taken a vacation like we've maybe missed an episode here or there, but uh, we've never actually taken an honest to God vacation. And so that's what we're doing this month. And uh, t- because of that, we're doing what we're calling our spring break rewind. Where we are uh, replaying some of our, our our hits from from the past, specifically ones that tend to correspond with um uh, Things that are out in theaters right now. And uh, this week, Tucker, there is a new movie in which Nicolas Cage, the great Nick, the great Nick Cage, uh, plays Count Dracula. Yeah, and it's got that kid from Who's the Beast. Mm-hmm. It's got the Beast kid in it. The kid what? Who's the Beast? Yeah, Nick Nicholas yeah. Holt. Nicholas Cage and Nicholas Holt. We got the dueling Nikolai. They did an interview. I saw an interview online with them and... That's when I realized both of their names were Nicholas. Yeah. And Nicholas Holt was drinking out of a mug that had Nicholas Cage's face all over it. That's a cool thing to do. It is. And Nicholas Cage was sitting right next to him, just looking very confused. And it was great. As it should be. Though not, I mean, he's, it was, I don't know how to segue into this, but it just made me think of that time. That on Weekend Update that Andy Samberg was doing Nick Cage and Nick Cage was also there and they were together doing Nick Cage, except Nick Cage is actually Nick Cage. So he wasn't doing Nick Cage. He just was Nick Cage. Right. He just he just is himself. Um, But apparently he knows what the full cage is, because apparently when he was on uh, Into the Spider-Verse, he he did some dialogue as Spider-Man Noir and uh, they were like, that was great, Nick. But could you do it maybe a little a little more Nick Cage. He goes, oh, you want the full cage? And they're like, yes, we want the full cage. And so he gave him the full cage. And what you see in the movie is, in fact, the full cage. I think the fullest of cages is probably Nick Cage in Raising Arizona. That is, that's a pretty cagey performance. And what's the, uh, what's the one where he's a raging alcoholic? Uh, leaving Las Vegas. Las Vegas. That's yeah. the one he won his Oscar for. Yeah. Those are the two fullest cage, cagey, caginess is there are. And um, let's be honest. Cage is a guy who never, we could do, we are, it is somewhere in the cards 
that we will do a Nicolas Cage theme month at some point. I've had my top five ready for months. And we'll get there. We're going to get to it, my friend. We absolutely will. Because, uh, again, Nicolas Cage is a fucking national treasure. And we we stand. We at the Disenfranchised Podcast stand Nick Cage. He's a um, Coppola, damn it. He is. And look, it cannot be ignored. And he, he is such a big comic book fan that he named himself after Power Man, Luke Cage himself. So... It's true. And he and he named his son Kal-El Cage. So again, there's there's enough <laughs> there to love. Tucker is is not enthused by, by Nicholas like, Cage's son's name. I like I like Nick Cage. I think he's really cool. Um I think that's a dumb thing to name your child, but there are certain things that celebrity and uh nepotism uh can save you from. Yep. And I think that kid will be just fine. Yep. I mean, you know, nepotism like makes strange named, bedfellows of us all. If you named your child Kalel or Jalel, you'd uh, Jorel. Yeah, that's what I said. Only the R was silent when I said it. it. Is that what it was? Because I have respect, Stephen. Is that what it is? Yeah, it starts with an R. That's why I had to silence it. I don't know. I got nothing. To You're say. so out of your depth here. <laughs> I don't even have a depth, man. It's 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 hilarious. You are you're a, you're so shallow, Tucker. Um, no, but because there is a new Nicolas Cage Dracula movie out this week um, called Renfield, we uh, are replaying an episode that we recorded in the first ten episodes of the podcast. Uh, on a little 1979 Universal picture called Dracula, starring Frank Langella, Lawrence Olivier, and Donald Pleasance. What what a movie. Uh, it is a movie we watched, and it is a movie we covered in our very first Spookython ever. Now, Stephen, I haven't seen this so-called Dracula you're mm-hmm. speaking of, but uh, when I was a younger man, when I wore a younger man's clothes uh, as as is said, um, I actually played Renfield in a, a stage adaptation of Dracula. I imagine you would have been very good in that role. I was very good in that role. Thank you very much. If you do say so yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I was unhinged. Um, I mean, that I, is that is what the role requires for sure. I also got I also got the director to allow me to add one little tiny laugh like dude does in the Bela Lugosi Dracula, the Renfield where he's like, (laughs) I, he is probably my favorite part of that. The the actor who plays Renfield in that movie, probably my favorite part of that movie. He is good. 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 Great. To say nothing about the, the Renfield from the Dracula film directed by Nick Cage's uncle, uh, Francis Ford Coppola. That is to say the great Tom Waits. As yeah, Renfield dude. in that movie, fucking Just incredible! All the Renfields, every, even a dude from Ally McBeal and Ghostbusters too. That's in Dracula: Dead and Loving It. Even he's great, right? Yeah, that's hilarious. Peter he's, he's yeah, the yeah, best yeah. Part of that movie, I think. Honestly, honestly, that yeah, that movie pretty not. I, I know you're generally out on um, Mel on Brooks, um, Mel Brooks, yeah. Um, but um. But no, yeah. I that is that is not one of the better uh, Mel Brooks films. If I if I'm being real real honest, that's what I've heard. Um, that's one of the only ones I actually like. So, 
Well, yeah, that that tells me all I need to know right there. As it should. Um, but no, the Renfield in this film was uh, played by an actor named uh, Tony Haygarth. And I'll bet he was real good. Uh, I I've don't remember. It's been Maybe I'll it, watch know, it. I have not seen it since we covered it for this podcast. But uh, 1979's Dracula, uh, directed by John Badham and starring uh, the people I mentioned earlier. Um an attempt to do Dracula as a love story based on a, uh, based on a play. Uh, we talk, you know what? We talk all about it in the episode that you're getting ready to listen to. So I will not belabor the point at all. Uh, Tucker, you were not on this episode. No, uh, what it, what are you, <laughs> you, you are now retroactively. We're putting you in. Um, in. You're going to, you're going to go back as you, uh, as you re-edit this episode and just like throw, like random yeah like just <laughs> lol edit like i'm gonna edit this i'm just gonna slap these bumpers on and call it a day right yeah i just i love the idea of you going through that episode and just like dropping in a, i agree well you know, said fellas like something like that or <laughs> i'd never say well said fellas <laughs> that's why it's funny uh before i was uh, a host on this podcast uh, as a fan, uh, I often wanted to make my own edits where I just like s- stopped the podcast and like interjected and, and was like, this is where both Steven and Brett are so wrong. I can't even believe it. And let me explain <laughs> to you why for 30 minutes. I mean, that is every that is every podcast fans dream when like two hosts are talking and they can't remember something and you know exactly what it is. And you're every screaming. Time. I always know what it is. Always. <laughs> and you're just like, scre- you're just angrily screaming at your pod- podcasting you device. Son of a bitch. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Um, but yeah, so we uh, we talked about this. Uh, it's been, oh gosh, probably um, like two and a half years since we discussed this movie um, on the podcast. It's one that I remember quite enjoying. Brett, I think, was a little uh, less effusive about it as I was, but. I remember it being a pretty good film. Um, so, yeah, um, we will kind of back out of the way. But uh, a lot of things have changed since this episode aired uh, originally. Um, and among the things that have changed is the fact that um, uh, all of our socials have changed. Uh, so you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd and Facebook at DisenfranchPod. Uh, I am your host, Stephen Foxworth. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Chewy Walrus. The absent Brett Wright can be found on Instagram and Letterboxd at sus underscore warlock. And Tucker, where can we find you? You can find me, as always, on YouTubes at youtube.com slash ice909. That's I-C-E-N-I-N-E, the number zero and the number nine. Right on. And so without any further ado, we will go ahead and leave you in the very capable hands of past Steven and past Brett as they discuss 1979's Dracula. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Disenfranchised. We're a podcast about those franchises of one, those movies that had those those grandiose, lofty aspirations of being a full-fledged blockbuster Hollywood franchise, but ultimately... Fell completely flat. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Stephen Foxworthy. And who's that coming out through the French doors amid all that smoke? Why, it's my other co-host, Brett Wright. How are you, sir? Good evening, Stephen. Good evening, Brett Wright. How are you? I am good. 
Good. My my Dracula sounds very like a Russian. <laughs> it does. Honestly. Even though even though Vlad is uh, Romanian, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah, he is. Not I that agree. Frank Langell is really attempting an accent in this movie. No. No. Not at all. Not at all. Not even. I mean, Lugosi actually is from the the Eastern Bloc, so he has that voice because that's how he talks in everyday conversation. But Langella's just like, hey, I'm Dracula. How's it going? And we're all like, yes, you are. Okay, I'm coming with you. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so that that's what's crazy, right? Is like, just because that was Lugosi's natural speaking voice, every Dracula since has, has tried to copy it. It's kind well, of I mean, Transylvania is a historical region of Romania, so that in that respect, it kind of makes sense. But you're right. You're absolutely right. Like, that's how iconic that Lugosi portrayal of Dracula in 1931 really was. It It's the benchmark against all other portrayals of Dracula, um, against which all other portrayals of Dracula are measured. And found wanting? Probably. If we're, if we're being honest. Like, he's the gold standard, for sure. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but, but we should probably mention what we're talking about today. What movie are we talking about today, Stephen? I mean, hey, like, look, we talk we talk about movies that didn't get franchises, but they were really trying for them, really searching for them. So today, I guess I'm introducing the movie this week. This is a nice change of pace. Uh, we're talking. Uh, that means you're going to run down every actor that appeared in this movie, right? Nope. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll do that, too. We're talking about 1979's Dracula. Uh, directed by John Badham and starring Frank Langella, Lawrence Olivier, Donald Pleasance, Kate Nelligan, Trevor Eve, Jan Francis, Janine Duvitsky, uh, Tony Haygarth. I'm just going down this list here. Uh, I'll, I'll just skip ahead to Sylvester McCoy because that's a relevant name because that dude was the doctor. I think the eighth doctor, maybe the seventh. The seventh. eighth. I believe Se it was the eighth. I'm going to look it up now because I don't want to get comments. And I know we will. Look, man, I'm a hoobie, and I know he was the eighth. Okay. All right. Bank it, buddy. Bank uh, it, buddy. Okay. Seventh Doctor is an incarnation of the Doctor, the protagonist of the BBC science fiction television show Doctor Who. He is portrayed by Scottish actor Sylvester McCoy. Well, this is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, those... Hoobian uh, card revoked. Angry Whovians, please tweet at Brett Wright at Gunslinger Fire with the hashtag you don't know who. Yep. I will brace myself for that deluge. That that onslaught of angry Whovian wrath. <laughs> Man, you, you this is you've fallen on your sword quite a lot lately. You had to recant your Ghostbusters is not a horror movie. Uh, last week and then this week, here you are uh, calling calling the wrong number on the doctor. Look, it's old Who, all right? I don't really know old Who that well. That's you no know. excuse, sir. I, no, everyone I mean, knows Tom Baker's the fourth doctor. Everyone knows that. Sure. That's that's <laughs> top of your head knowledge right there. So, Name the My, fifth doctor, then. Name the fifth the, doctor. The fifth doctor is... Um, yeah. uh, is that Colin Baker? I don't know, Stephen, is it? I don't know. I'm going to find out right now. Google, come to my aid. Fifth Doctor. Uh, Peter Davison. Sorry. My bad. I don't... I See, I'm not... My knowledge of Doctor Who begins and ends with Christopher Eccleston. So, I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm a Whovian. I'm not. 
because Christopher Eccleston is the one doctor that I've really invested a lot of time and energy in. Um, I, I made it about halfway through Tenant's first season, and I had never really went back. So, and Eccleston was the first doctor. I was like, hey, I've heard things about this Doctor Who. I should check this out. So literally begins and ends with Eccleston. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to sit here and claim to be a Whovian like some people I know. Sure. It's a good thing I'm the editor because this is all getting cut. No, it has to stay in. <laughs> no. No, it has to stay in. This no, is good, we, this is good we content. We don't need like three to five minutes talking about Doctor Who at the beginning of a Dracula episode. It's a great digression and the people will love it. The fans are going to love it. Aren't you fans? Yes. I'm right. You know I'm right too. This is going to be great. <laughs> at any rate... Uh, Sylvester McCoy, a young Sylvester McCoy, uh, appears in this movie, credited as Sylvester McCoy, because it looks like someone forgot to put the R at the end of his name. Um, but yeah, so he, he's very young in this movie, uh, in a role that, uh, according to what I read, uh, the producers just wanted to put him in the movie because they liked him. Uh, and so they cut the role that Teddy Turner plays, Swales, in half and gave half of it to Sylvester McCoy. So it's uh, he's only in half of a role in this movie, but uh, he's he's pretty good in what he's in. I don't even remember him in this movie. So he's the guy at the who's outside the uh, outside the cell in the sanitarium, sanatorium, the the crazy place. He's yeah. got the the glasses and the little flat hat, the vest. Oh, that guy! Yeah, like you didn't even recognize him because he's so no. young. Yeah, no, I did not even recognize him. Because, I mean, you recognize him as kind of an older, slightly portlier gentleman uh, in a very nice suit with question marks all over it. Sure. You being the great Whovian. Right. Right. So, but yes, he is in this movie, uh, and he's he's really the reason we're here to talk. We're just going to spend the next hour and a half talking about Sylvester McCoy in 1979's Dracula. No, we're not. Um, we're going to talk about Dracula in all its form and splendor. Uh, this is the first attempt, and this, at least from what I can tell, uh, the first attempt of Universal to uh, revamp their Universal Monsters series, uh, and they do so with Dracula. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna get into it. But before we get into it, Brett, what is your history with the character of Dracula? I mean, he's a, he's been around for a while. One of the most iconic literary characters of all time. Um, he's in the public domain now, so literally anyone can tell this story. Uh, what is your history with, with Dracula, with vampires? I mean, give me, give me the spiel, man. Where do you, where are you coming from? Well, I have always been a vampire guy, uh, when it comes to your mythological monsters. Um, honestly don't really remember when I started, uh, Probably around the same time most of my horror knowledge comes from. Probably early to late teens. Um, I mean, my dad more than likely showed me the original Dracula at some point. I know I watched Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, when it came out. Um, didn't appreciate it as much as I do now, but uh, I, I definitely I read the book after I'd seen that movie. Um, so. Because yeah, I think I read I read Bram Stoker's Dracula in high school, uh, which would have been after the movie came out. Um, so yeah, the movie came out I think ninety two, ninety three, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't remember if it was early nineties or late nineties. 
I have it in my notes here, actually. Um, it was... No, I don't have it in my notes. I'll look it up while you keep talking. Um, well, actually, I mean, I'll cut this out, and then you can just give me... So that way we're not... There's a... We get to keep some stuff. We got to keep concise. Sure, sure, sure. There's a lot of silence and hold on. I didn't have that up stuff that I added all the time. So I, I've noticed that for sure. <laughs> 92, 1992 is Bram Stoker's Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, as oh. I like to call it. So it was so it was early 90s. Um, yeah, very early 90s. So so yeah, uh, I definitely I read the book after I saw the movie. Um, which I mean, I must not have seen the movie when it came out then because I was eight uh so i probably saw the movie later um but anyway i'm rambling at this point um is vampires are great man i love vampires i love dracula um what is it about vampires that you so enjoy i don't know you know it's it's the because the at least at least modern day vampires anyway are very um talking about the ones that glitter in sunlight no not those okay uh (laughs) <laughs> the you know, Anne Rice vampires is probably the more okay. That makes more sense. Or I mean, Dracula, Dracula too. You know, he's he's a suave dude. Um, I mean, I would call that a classic vampire. I don't know. Like, there's that's that's an interesting discussion to have. Is because there's let's have it, man. Get into it. I mean the the classic the classic vampire is is a lot like Dracula, sure, but. I don't think you really get the sophisticated um, debutante vampire until Anne Rice comes around. Like we're talking like Southern Bells debutante. Yeah, like the the like lots of pearl clutchings and I do declares. <laughs> I mean, yeah, a lot of her stuff is set in New Orleans in the South. So oh, okay, touche. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't never read any Anne Rice. This is all news oh. to me. Oh, okay. Well, welcome to the to the fandom. Um, <laughs> is, 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 I'm, I'm a fan now, apparently. Okay, cool. Yes, yes. <laughs> you absolutely are. Cause nice. You've heard of them. So, um, I've certainly done that. But yeah, so that's... Uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm rambling again. Classic um, vampires is what we're talking about. Sure, classic versus... Anne modern. Rice. Modern. Versus Which you define, yeah, you define modern as the Anne Rice generation. Uh, so that would probably include like Buffy vampires. And then the Twilight era is probably the postmodern vampire. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. Um, and uh, the more humanized vampire is probably the, the modern vampire, right? Because like... Okay. While Dracula is, you know, suave and debonair and all that, he's he's still debonair, not debutante, sir. Both work in my context. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> God, I'm all over the place. This podcast. I'm you just... are. It's fine, man. It's fine. Oh. We're hemorrhaging listenership anyway. It's fine. <laughs> I hate it. Can we just start this episode over. Nope, uh, not happening. Um, we had about 10 minutes of great Sylvester McCoy talk that we're leaving in there. We're, we're just, we're powering through at this point. Oh God. <laughs> oh, I got a lot of editing ahead of me. Um, anyway, 
I don't even know where I was. Who knows? Uh, Dracula, debonair. It, right, Dr- Dracula. You know, while he's while he's debonair, he's there's still this otherworldly monster quality to him. Um, that I think the the Anne Rice vampires don't have as much of. They're not like. I don't want to say predatory. They're not as predatory, but I mean they they kind of are, but it's not as overt. I mean, I don't really know what I'm getting at here, honestly. But I I hope that the listeners out there understand what I'm talking about. Maybe you do. I don't really know what I'm talking about. So, all right. So any any vampire enthusiasts who want to correct Brett, uh, please tweet at him at Gunslinger Fire with the hashtag You Don't Know Vampires. Can so many hashtags thrown at me this week. Uh, <laughs> I mean, hey man. It's your fault for not knowing things, I guess. Uh, yeah. And they're, pretending, <laughs> and they're pretending that I do know them. Yeah, that's... Uh, right. I'm getting exposed. Yeah. Hey, it happened to me last week with my... um, I don't know, that thing that we talked about last week that I ended up, like, shooting myself in the foot over, like, my taste in movies or something. I don't remember. We say last week because listeners heard it last week. We recorded it, like, a month ago at this point yeah so so yeah i mean hey we we all have to fall on our sword at some point you're just doing it a lot this episode for whatever reason i don't really know why i'm tired barely got that coffee in me that that probably has a lot to do with you went to the drive-in last night so you were out pretty late yeah i did what'd you see at the drive-in well a callback to our evil dead episode i actually got to see evil dead one and two at the drive-in last night hey that i bet that was awesome it it was indeed pretty awesome. Did Not, that enhance the experience of Evil Dead for you? I honestly would say that it did. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. I'm I'm excited for you. I wish I could have gone, uh, but I did not have access to a car last evening, so. Well, that's very unfortunate. Well, next week, um the Army of Darkness is going to be there. Okay. I'm I'm it's honestly kind of a bummer they couldn't make it a triple feature. They did make it a triple feature with American Werewolf in London which is itself an amazing movie. Um, but they it's a shame they couldn't have just done all three Evil Deads right in a row. That would have been pretty sweet. Yeah, I'm really not sure why they didn't, to be honest. Especially since they're showing it next week. I don't really know. Maybe they couldn't get their license for it last, last week, but can this week? I don't know. Honestly, by the time listeners hear this, this will be several weeks out of date because we record a lot of these episodes well in advance. So, Yeah, uh, spoilers. Uh <laughs> It's, uh, it's, you know, at the time, it's well into November for us by the time you listen to this. Correct. Um, yeah. So I mean, yeah, we're, it's fine. It's fine. Um, but yeah, we do record a lot of these well in a bit at the time you're listening to this, our evil dead episode just dropped a couple days ago. So by the time we're recording this at the time you're listening to this, um, Beetlejuice just dropped last week. So, Hey. You're, I mean, hey, it's it's all good. You're having fun. We're having fun. It's fun. Everyone's having fun. It's great. Brett, it's fine. It's fine. God, I see you over there we're rambling out. so much. All right. Well, then, hey, let me just talk about my... <laughs> uh, let me just talk about my history with Dracula. Just to get us back on track. At this point, I just embrace the chaos at this point, man. So Dracula, um, a character, obviously, I mean, he's such a part of the zeitgeist that it's kind of impossible not to know Dracula. Um, but in terms of my exposure to 
what I would call the literary Dracula. Um, probably not until college. Uh, someone gifted me a copy of, and by a copy of, I mean a 100-year-old printing of Bram Stoker's Dracula. And so I was like, this is great. I love this. And they actually gave me a bunch of other books too, but the Dracula was the one I was most excited. I actually took the rest of the collection so I could get Dracula. Um, and I was like, I have to read this. And so a friend of mine had Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula on digital video disc or uh, colloquially we refer to them as dvds um and he's like we have to watch this and i said well hold on because i want to read this book first and so after about four months of me not reading that book he's like screw it we're watching this movie and so we watched francis ford coppola's bram stoker's dracula um and uh, that's the one with gary oldman uh i was not a fan because of the mostly because of the keanu reeves of it all uh, Keanu can do a lot of things very well. Uh, accents, not one of them, which I believe we discussed at length in our Constantine episode. Um, so, yeah. That is why he's not British in the movie. <laughs> right. Um, and why he, atta- I mean, because he had, he had this and Dangerous Liaisons uh, on his track record. Both movies I've seen this year, um, both movies good in spite of him, I would say. So you know, do with that what you will. But um, yeah, so I I didn't like it at the time. I rewatched it earlier this year, liked it a little better, liked it a little more. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's kind of, and then as I've gotten older, I've started dipping my toe more into the the Dracula water. Still have not read the book. I couldn't get into the book because of the uh, epistolary format. Like it's basically a bunch of letters and logs and things kind of compiled together. Had a real, I would probably get into it now now more than i did then uh but at the time i just i couldn't couldn't deal wasn't wasn't my thing so i've to date not and i i somewhere i have floating around a 100 year old copy of the book so i need to find that and i could actually read it it's probably more than a 100 year old book now right well can't hear you really oh now i can oh okay that was weird i had like a popping in my headphones huh. and then uh you said something and i couldn't hear it yeah well it's probably more than 100 years old 100 year old it's probably more than 100 years old year years old 100 years yes 100 why does that not old. sound right to me when i say it oh my god steven what the just fuck? take just shut up and take another sip of coffee right. Brett. thank you <sighs> i'm having i'm having a day man i can tell gonna make for a great podcast though um yeah <clears throat> i mean if it doesn't this episode's gonna be like 10 minutes long yeah you're right <clears throat> so it's, it's probably more than 100 years old now right oh most assuredly i mean there have been a few books that have been gifted to me that were at the time they were gifted to me over 100 years old i'm pretty sure i was given a 100 year old copy of Macbeth once too that again i have somewhere so i've got some i've got a couple of very old bibles so i've got a lot of very old books i love books uh love to read when i have the time which these days i i'm too busy watching movies um but i do enjoy reading when i can um so old books love them plus they look really cool on bookshelves that's true so, I, yeah, I've, I've been doing more reading 
lately i've been uh working my way through the dresden files again nice i mean i should be doing more reading but i'm just i'm watching movies man i'm watching my my 31 horror films in october um so i've got all that going on um plus i'm also watching additional horror movies because why not like I watched uh, Wes Craven's My Soul to Take last night because I want to watch all the Wes Craven movies this year for reasons. So I did that last night, which I would put it like a step below Shocker. Um, but yeah, it's fine. But yeah, there you go. So that's, I mean, kind of my history. Vampires, I've, I've always been more of a werewolf guy. Um, so I don't know. I like werewolves more, always have. Um, the the torture, the dichotomy, the duality, the tortured nature of the werewolf is is what I really enjoy about that. Um, whereas vampires just they always just seem like too cool for what's going on, and I've I've never felt too cool for anything. So I don't know. There you go. Werewolves I I prefer to, to vampires, but you know it's it you can't really have one without the other. So there you go. Well, I suppose. Um, and I normally, that makes me what the kids call Team Jacob. I actually don't know what that means. I just, no, you know. Don't, don't, no, you don't, you're not. You don't want to be. For Do I not? No, you don't. Let me, I, I, I legitimately don't know what any of that is. And good. You are better for it. Um, <clears throat> I've read those. And I have books. to watch those one of these days. You read the books. Wow. Yeah, I did. I did. That's how deep your vampire love goes. Yeah, because I, I read them as they were coming out. So they're like, and this was, again, like I've mentioned before, in a time b- before such the prevalence of internet. So mm-hmm. I didn't know about, I mean, sort of. You, you peripherally get this idea when you walk into a bookstore, um, much like with Harry Potter around the time. of like You, you get a sense that these are a big deal. Yeah. You're not on the internet. So, As someone who was working in a bookstore around that time, yes, correct. Yeah. So, but you know, the, you don't see the level of obsession that fans have. So, you understand that, really, to me anyway, these are popular vampire novels. I should read them, um, and I did, and I am a, a worse person because of it. Um, <clears throat> Uh, angry, angry Twilight fans that want to tweet at Brett. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not gonna. I'm uh, not gonna stick no, that group fine. on you. Look, no, it's fine. You, you've you've sucked the Hoovians on me already. You think that's <laughs> any better? Uh, <laughs> and now, and now you just said that. So, like, I, uh, I'm just, I'm just pissing off fandoms left and right today. Welcome. Fandoms Welcome. are toxic and evil. That is the official uh, stance of the disenfranchised podcast. Indeed, indeed, it is. Uh, don't be a fan. Just like stuff. Hold on loosely. And you know what? It's okay that if, if you don't like something that comes out of your particular fandom, it's okay to say, that wasn't for me. You don't have to get belligerent and hateful about it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I say. That's what I say as well. You know, you can like something, but you don't got to be like a rabid monster about it. Yeah, don't, don't quit harassing Daisy Ridley and Kelly Marie Tran on the internet. Just stop it. They're, they're good people and they did nothing wrong to you. Yeah, let's drag the Star Wars fandom. <laughs> Who's next? Who do we got uh, next? The Snyder Cut will not be better than whatever has already come out with regard to Justice League. Um, oh man, who else can I tick off this episode? I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Fandoms are fandoms are are wrong. 
no no more fandoms bring hashtag, out bring hashtag out no more fandoms <laughs> hashtag no more fandoms um <clears throat> i like that except except for vampire fans y'all are cool uh on the I, whole. I mean i don't know sure I, I don't, uh, you're, you're one of the few vampire fans I know. So, and now so, all my friends who are vampire fans will be like, what are you talking about, dude? I'm a vampire fan. have been for a long time. And I'm like, okay, talk about it. Like in conversation. <laughs> yeah. Bring it up. You know, let me know. I'm just saying you, you obviously aren't bringing it up enough. If I, if I can't call you out on this episode. All right. So <laughs> anyway, Dracula, 1979. Ah, this is fun. We're having a good time. <laughs> this is a very productive episode. We're getting a lot done. Can you tell we'd rather be talking about anything else other than this movie? Um, we actually, movie. I did like this movie. Um, it's been a few weeks since I saw it, though. Uh, so at this point, I'm just up for having a conversation about whatever. Um, so let's do the uh, plot in 60 seconds. Oh. This is where one of us decided at the at the flip of a coin has to run down the plot of the movie that we are discussing uh, in 60 seconds or less. I am going to flip the coin right now, and Brett is going to call it in the air. So, Brett, call it in the air. Uh, as always, Tails. And it is Tails. So oh, I, I won one. The streak is broken. Thank God. <laughs> the streak is broken. I will be now recounting the um, plot of, I can't even think of the word plot. This is going to bode well for me, uh, of Dracula 1979 um, in 60 seconds or less, having not seen it in three weeks. So this is going to be fun. Uh, Brett, uh, go ahead and put 60 seconds on the clock. Let me know when the 30 and 10 second marks have been hit. Not that I'm going to hit any of these, but yeah. Yeah, you might believe in yourself, buddy. This is, this is not bode well. Again, not not a movie I've seen for multiple weeks, many many weeks. <clears throat> okay, your time. Hold on. Starts. Hold on. Now. No, it doesn't. I said hold on many times. I'm I'm literally just going over the plot on Wikipedia just to refresh myself because <laughs> I know this is going to be bad. Yeah, this. Oh man, this is rough. I don't remember any of this. All right, I it, it's it's gonna be bad regardless. So, all right, whenever, man, it's it's just it's gonna be rough. <sighs> okay, your time starts now. All right, so there's a shipwreck, and a bunch of people are dead on the ship, and they pull all this stuff off, and oh hey, look, there's a guy moving into Carfax Abbey. Oh, it's the mysterious Count Dracula. He's so alluring, and everybody loves him, and he's seducing all the women. Um, and then someone gets really sick. Um, Mina gets really sick, and so they call her dad, uh, Dr. Van Helsing, who's played by Lawrence Olivier, who's awesome. 
and he shows up and talks in his weird accent for a while. And he figures out that Dracula is a vampire when he doesn't see his reflection and is scared of garlic. And, and so um, they try to break Mina of his spell, but not after Dracula has thoroughly seduced her and he's going to make her his bride forever. So they go under the building and uh, they end up saving Mina and Dracula gets caught in sunlight, but his cape flies away at the end. So we're pretty sure that he lives to see another day somehow mysteriously sequel hook Ten seconds. And that's pretty much the end of the movie. Oh, and Donald Pleasance is Dr. Seward. And that is time. Cheers. That was, well, uh, that was, well <laughs> I mean, I skipped most of the plot of the movie, but hey, you know. Yeah, it's a Dracula story. We all know Dracula's story, right? I mean, we should at this point, I mean, despite having never read the book. Um, but I mean, it's not a faithful adaptation of Dracula, but then I would argue that there aren't many faithful adaptations of Dracula. So, you know. Honestly, it's, it's, the only one is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, yeah. Ford Coppola's movie. That's the closest we get. And even that took some liberties. Sure. I mean, you kind of have to in a Dracula, or in any adaptation, really. Um, because novels and movies aren't the same thing. You've got to make some concessions there. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we've never had, until Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, have never had a a truly um what's the word faithful adaptation of of the dracula story so this uh i mean and I th- the reason for that is there's a there's a play that came out in 1924 revised in 1927 and the 1927 revision was bella lugosi's first major role in america where he played count dracula uh, and that's it was that play that got him the role in the Universal film. And the Universal film is essentially just doing that play, more or less, um, including the ending, which I just watched the 1931 uh, Dracula this past week for my 31 movies in October series that I'm doing uh, and uh, realized that they actually kept the original ending from Dracula in the movie. Most of the time they go with the Nosferatu ending, which is what this movie does, which is Dracula gets caught in sunlight and bursts into flame, which you do because it's more cinematic, but it's not entirely accurate to the story. So. You got nothing? I, man, I don't know why my mind went blank. I like I had something ready to start saying and then just lost it. <laughs> Dracula's demise. Hold on, let me get there. Okay. So something else that that play sort of does that really annoys the hell out of me is yeah, you you <laughs> we were texting as you were watching this and you were so annoyed by this i was so annoyed because i don't really get it i don't understand why you have to switch mina and shit what's the lucy lucy i don't understand why you have to switch mina and lucy's names there's literally no reason for that mina harker is like an iconic literary character Mm -hmm. but like why why switch the names it doesn't make any sense was she as iconic in 1979 
Because I would argue, I would argue Dracula and Van Helsing are the the iconic characters from Dracula. I mean, Mina becomes more iconic later. I think Alan Moore using her in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, at least for nerds of our generation, was really essential to that iconography of her being that iconic. I think Francis Ford Coppola um, and Winona Ryder's portrayal in his movie helped that as well. But until I would say until that point, I, I would argue, is she? Well, I mean, I don't really know. I'm going to assume that no, because it, yeah, they seem to not care. Uh, yeah, but... and it's it's something that that play does. And I mean, I I remember us talking about this and me going, actually, it's because of this play. So, yeah, that's that's the reason is is because of this this play in the 1920. And basically, what Universal does here. So this seems honestly okay. Let me let me rewind a lot because we did not. We kind of skipped over my brief history of Dracula that I had prepared. Um, and, and honestly, I think that's going to help inform the remainder of this discussion. So uh, at least Dracula on film, let's go with that. The first adaptation of Dracula, first filmed adaptation of Dracula was what, Brett? Uh, that was uh, the Nosferatu, right? Nosferatu, correct. 1922's Nosferatu, um, which was made without permission of the Stoker estate. Uh, and as such, they had to change all the character names uh, and the ending. Actually, I think the ending was originally changed because someone went to the director and was like, hey, did we get the rights to this? And he went, no. He's like, you know, they could sue us. And he goes, not if we change the ending. So they, they changed the ending, which according to my research, and you may have to correct me because you're the vampire lore guy. Um, this is, I think, one of the first instances, or if not the first instance, of the vampire bursting into flames at the risen sun idea is that is that accurate or no because according to my research it is and that, that could very well be true uh it's 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 not a stated bit of lore but it's like weakened state during the day right man the lore on I, you know i could go all the different i could go into all the different kinds of lore this the the lore for vampires is all over the place um because there's no real set lore anywhere uh you know it's it's most of the time you never see them during the day so mm. while they never state that they're weak to sunlight most people assumed they were which okay. is probably where the at least the idea probably came from mm -hmm. um they're like well if we never see them during the day they must be weak to sunlight so that must kill them right so that's something you can just sort of extrapolate on. So, okay. It, yeah, it's probably the first time we ever actually see it. Um, but I mean, like I said earlier, this is that idea really enters into the pop culture lexicon as the main way you kill vampires is get them to come out during the day somehow or trick them into coming out during the day. Um, I, mean, I don't know if that's the main way. I mean, you, I, I feel like steaks and garlic and crosses are just as prevalent as sunlight is. Sure, sure. Um, but then you get the universal horror era era of Dracula, and Dracula is the the character, I would argue, the character that kicks off that whole franchise. You could argue that Lon Chaney's uh, Phantom of the Opera is really the first one, um, but there's a good six years in between Chaney's Phantom and Lugosi's Dracula, whereas later that year, they, when they realize how popular Lugosi's Dracula is, they're like, okay, well, then let's do Frankenstein. 
okay, let's do The Wolfman. Let's do, you know, more of these kind of monster-driven horror films. And that really kind of kicks the franchise off. So Dracula, I would argue, is the beginning for that reason. Um, but again, Bela Lugosi off the popular run of the play, which, I mean, according to what I've read, women are going to the Lugosi play and, like, fainting because he's so romantic and so sexy. Like, and that's kind of where we get this idea of Dracula as sex symbol. And it almost all stems from Lugosi's portraying him as this kind of swab, swab, suave, uh, to use your word, debonair, uh, vampire. Um, and, and that I think kind of, and reinforces this idea that we're stuck with to this day, that vampires are sexy and Dracula himself is sexy. Yeah, which I guess Anne Rice extrapolates on. So mm -hmm. just just ignore everything I said earlier about You're fine, man. It's fine. Just yeah. It's fine. We're still getting caffeine in our system. You'd think this is an early morning record. It's four o'clock in the afternoon and we're still struggling. So I mean, you know, it's what it is, man. It's fine. Um they do not capitalize on the success of Dracula until five years later with Dracula's daughter, uh, a movie that Dracula does not even appear in. It's about his daughter. It's not about Dracula. Dracula's dead. Can't be about Dracula. Uh, uh, except... But he appears in his son's movie. Yeah, he's in his son's movie, played by the great Lon Chaney Jr., him of Wolfman fame. I think Lon Chaney Jr. is one of the few actors that plays most of, if not all, of the classic Universal monsters. Because um, he's the Wolfman. He's like the only one who plays the Wolfman during that classical era. Uh, and then you've got... I think he plays Frankenstein once. Lugosi also plays Frankenstein in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. But I don't know. I'm just, I'm talking out of my butt at some point. Um, tweet at me, at Chewy Walrus, with hashtag, you don't know the Universal Monsters. Um, but 43, Son of Dracula, Lon Chaney Jr. 44, House of Frankenstein, uh, played for the first time by John Carradine, who reprises the role a year later in House of Dracula. Uh, and then we devolve into complete parody mode in the late 40s, with um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, and they say that when a genre is, parod is, is parodied publicly, um, it's over. Like, it's done. And so this is more or less the death knell for the Universal Monsters. They do have some success in the 50s with The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, they do three of those movies. But in terms of just, like, the success of their run, that, that miracle run they had in, in the 30s and 40s, it's more or less over here. Um, at this point, all we've got left are Abbott and Costello movies and um, Treasure from the Black Lagoon. Uh, so it's about 10 years after that that Hammer Horror decides they want to get their hands on the property. Uh, they had a really big success with uh, their Frankenstein adaptation. Uh, so like, well, it's Dracula next. And so they get the stars of that movie, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, uh, playing Dracula and Van Helsing, respectively. And they do the horror of Dracula in 1958. And what sets them apart is they, they know, hey, we're doing these movies in color. So let's really amp up the gore and the blood. Uh, and so they do that. And that makes them insanely popular. Uh, whereas all the Universal movies, even into the 50s, are black and white. So Hammer really embraces the idea of color. And that's insanely, insanely a good idea for them. And they do, they have another kind of run of vampire or Dracula movies. Uh, Brides of Dracula in 1960, Dracula Prince of Darkness in 66, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave in 68, Taste 
The Blood of Dracula in 1970. The names, however, not great. Uh, Scars of Dracula, also in 1970. My favorite title of any Dracula movie ever, Dracula A.D. 1972, uh, which which literally just takes the story of Dracula and modernizes it into the 1970s. Um, And he's uh, picking off like uh, disco party scene people and uh, I think meets a descendant of Van Helsing's. Uh, the original Van Helsing's. So it, and Peter Cushing comes back for that movie after having not been in a few of them. Um, so, which I think is pretty great. Uh, then you get the last movie of that series with, with Lee in the movie. Uh, and that's the satanic rites of Dracula in 1973. Uh, the next year they do have another Dracula movie. Uh, Dracula is played by John Forbes Robinson called the legend of the seven golden vampires, which is like a, a Kung Fu horror movie. Um, because Kung Fu movies were starting to become really popular around that time. And so you've got uh, basically like high kicks and Dracula, which I mean, honestly seems like the cornerstone of your aesthetic, Brett. Kind of. I do. I do dig that a lot. I'm going to need to check that out maybe. Yeah. And which brings us to 1979, which is, I would say the year that Dracula hits critical pop cultural critical mass. Uh, because you've got four different Dracula movies, of which this is third in release order, at least in the United States. Four Dracula movies released in the United States, um, which I think might attribute might be attributed to the reason why uh, this movie didn't spawn a franchise. We because that is kind of our our chief focus with this podcast. The first uh, released in April was Love at First Bite which is a George Hamilton comedy. Again, it's a, it's a horror comedy. It's very parodic. Um, but, and again, as we've said, when they start to parody themselves, the genre is pretty well over. Um, and most of the people behind the, this movie would point to love at first bite as the reason why Dracula 79 did not do particularly well, because Dracula is now this comedic figure. Why would we want to take him seriously as a serious love interest to someone? Um, and that, that's also kind of got the romantic element love at first bite. That's a movie we can actually also discuss sometime on this podcast. Cause George Hamilton keeps threatening to make a sequel to that one, even though, uh, it's been 50 years. So yeah, I don't know. Time's not right, George, but Hey, he hasn't, that guy's not done anything for a while. I don't know. It's never going to happen though. That's the thing. It's never going to happen. Uh, next released in June was uh, Nocturna, which I think is like granddaughter of Dracula. Um, That is John Carradine comes back to play Dracula in that one, but that's a disco-inspired horror comedy. So again, um, horror comedy. And then a little more than a month later, we get this movie, Dracula in 79 with Frank Langella, uh, which is so completely different in tone to the first two that um, audiences did not like it. To put it into some context, uh, Love at First Bite was the 12th highest grossing movie of 1979. Uh, Dracula was the 35th highest grossing film. It only made about 21 million at the box. We'll get to the, the actually, we won't get to the opening weekend because I can't track those numbers for 79. But basically, it, it does not make nearly as much money. It makes less than half of the box office that Love at First Bite does. So uh, not considered a, a, a success in any respect 
for that reason. Uh, and then finally, the final Dracula film released in 1979 is the great Werner Herzog, Klaus Kinski collaboration, uh, Nosferatu the Vampire, uh, which is, have you seen Nosferatu the Vampire, Brett? I have not. You, It's great. You need to. It basically is Herzog's remake of the original 1922 film, um, but he takes a lot of liberties and I think all of them make for a much creepier film uh, overall. And Kinski is just, I mean, the man was probably literally insane, but his performance also like suitably unhinged for that character. And it's, it's great. I think it's on Tubi TV right now. So if you have, if you don't mind watching it with commercials, uh, Tubi might be the, uh, the thing to check out there to watch that. Well, sure. And Werner Herzog's great. So we we love Werner Herzog. We love yeah. we love him trying to kill poor baby Yoda. We do. We love it. I would like to see the baby. I want to see the child. He's great. He should be in more stuff. I love I love it. Honestly, my favorite Herzog things that he shows up in are when he like shows up to do like a, a guest spot on uh, a, a comedy TV show, just playing a really over exaggerated version of himself or like a very serious character saying really ridiculous things like um, the owner of the, uh, the doll factory in parks and rec. This was not the doll factory. This is where the workers lived. It just, I want to go to Orlando so I can be closer to Disney world. Like stuff like that is, is great. And if you haven't already, Paul F. Tompkins does a hilarious uh, Yelp review of Trader Joe's written by Werner Herzog. That is just, it's it's magnificent. It's so funny. I, I heard a, I saw a video of that and then immediately listened to Herzog reacting to listening to that recording. And it, they're both great. So highly recommend you check those out if you've not done so already. Both Brett and listeners abroad. Yeah, I gotta I gotta go do that like immediately. Yeah, so. do yourself a favor. Yeah. So yeah, so I I say all of that to say. I mean, this movie is kind of in a weird spot with regard to Dracula. And, and it, I get where Universal's coming from. Like, it feels like a good time to kind of reinvent their horror brand, but also failing to read the room as, in terms of where this is at, culturally speaking. Uh, and so what we're left with is just this really weird movie that feels like a Hammer horror film, adapting a very American version of the story, um, and real Still there? Hi. Hey. Okay. 
looks like Craig kept on recording, so that's good. I was I'll like, man, I don't know. What, well, I don't know what's going on. Like, I I unmuted, like I muted to take a drink because you know ice, and then when sure. I unmuted, you froze. Like I like right on cue, and I don't know if that's a coincidence because I mean when I probably unmuted, is. Well, when I unmuted earlier, you couldn't hear me for a minute, and you heard pops in the audio. So, oh, okay. So I'm going to avoid know, unmuting for the rest of this episode. Okay. Well, get all your coffee drinking out, because I got to figure out where I left off in my rant. You remember the last thing you heard me say? Please don't die. Please don't die. pumpkin spice in there that's <laughs> why it should be avoided at all costs my friend no i disagree this is worth it it's not it's not the pumpkin spread <laughs> it's the spice uh. <laughs> <clears throat> your 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 epitaph will read he died as he lived drinking pumpkin spice <laughs> Or I guess inhaling pumpkin spice would probably be the more accurate description. Yeah, it's the first time <clears> that the, the powders ever choked me. It's a little bit, a little bit still in <clears throat> So, do you remember where the where I left off in my screed? Yes, you were talking about how um, this this maybe was a little bit too inspired by Hammer. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, it feels like what we ultimately end up with is a film that looks and feels very much like a Hammer Horror film because it is entirely, it feels entirely like a British production. You've got a predominantly British cast. You've got a British director who, I mean, to talk about John Badham for half a second, dude did Saturday Night Fever right before this, like two years before this. So dude had his pulse on 70s culture or finger on the pulse on uh, Dude had his finger on the pulse of 70s culture, at least late 70s culture. Um, but then he would go on to do like War Games, uh, the Johnny Depp film Nick of Time. Like, dude has some some decent films in his filmography. Um, this is kind of a weird early movie for him. But but British cast, Lawrence Olivier, Donald Pleasance, Sylvester McCoy. You've got British director, clearly British setting. I mean, all the sets and all the artwork and, and the locations in this film are very British. You can tell just because of the thin layer of fog that surrounds everything. Um, so it feels very much like a British production. Um, but then you've also got this universal stamp on it. Like this is a universal film. So it's universal trying to tell this very American version, at least it feels of this classic story with this British cast trying to fuse the universal horror model to the hammer horror model um, which again, it had been by this by the time this comes out five years since there had been a Hammer Horror release in the Dracula mold. Uh, so I don't know, maybe this is kind of a tone deaf attempt at their point, uh, because right now the Dracula that's killing is the goofy Dracula, not the self serious lover Dracula. 
<clears throat> yeah, and I and I, and honestly, this movie uh, kind of is unintentionally campy and funny at times. It. Is. I mean, there's some. Ca- I. I. I'm just gonna show my card. I had fun with this movie. I understand it is not the best adaptation of Dracula that there is, but I had. I thought Frank Langella was doing great work. I thought Larry Olivier and Donald Pleasance are doing great work, especially Pleasance, man. Um, well, we'll have, I'll have to go on my Pleasance diatribe here in a few minutes. Cause I, I, Donald Pleasance is great in this movie. There's, there's enough here that I, that I ended up enjoying this film. Uh, whereas I think most people at the time and even now probably still don't really care for it. No, I, I didn't really, I'll, I'll show my cards here. I didn't really care for it much, but <clears throat> at the same time, I, uh, I loved, I loved Donald Pleasance as well. Um, he's just constantly like eating like there's that scene where they're all sitting down to breakfast and we realize that Mina is sick and he's just shoveling food in his face and everyone else has this very serious like oh no like oh what's going on oh like you know that stuffy serious British thing that they're doing and Pleasance is just like loading his plate with food shoveling in his face offering Van Helsing coffee like he's eating candy while out on the moors, like, dude is just... I'm, Pleasance is an actor that I've, I've noticed, and I, I I have not had a read on Pleasance for most of the time, but this movie, I think, solidified for me that the thing I like most about Pleasance performances is that the dude is constantly making big choices as an actor. Like, dude is going in and just showing that he's putting in the work. Um, this is the guy who had an entire backstory for why a British man would be president of the United States in John Carpenter's escape from New York. Um, Not something Carpenter wanted, needed, or even felt the need to include in the script, but Pleasance had to make it make sense in his own mind. So he figured it out. Like that's the kind of actor that Pleasance is. Uh, I don't know if you've seen his bond movie, but he is absolutely unhinged as Blofeld, but he also becomes like the metric for what Blofeld is and what Blofeld would become as a character. Like he is unbelievably insane and great as an actor. And and I, I always have fun watching him because again, he's just making these huge choices, whether it's to to pile a bunch of food on his plate or to um, you know, hold his like pinky up to his mouth while he talks. It, it just the dude's making those big calls and I love him for it. <clears throat> Yeah, because I, I absolutely think that a lot of because at first I I didn't really realize this with his performance, and so at first I'm taking it like, why is he acting like he doesn't care? Why is he like? Why does he only care about food? What is this performance? What is this guy doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I then I start to realize that oh, these are active choices he's making. Um, yes, like the. <clears throat> That breakfast scene, like where he's shoveling food in his mouth. Yeah, that's absolutely it's the best. I love it so much. He doesn't seem to care. Um when <clears throat> when uh when Mina first gets attacked, he and they can they, you know, they're frantically calling him into the room to come look at her. He casually jogs into the room like he doesn't care. He he decides to use the best treatment for someone who looks like they've just been drained of all their blood. Uh, you grab their head, shake them a few times and slap <laughs> them twice. 
Um, well, I mean, he's playing the horror archetype of the skeptic, though. And when you know that, like when you read that and you, then you see the choices that he's making as the skeptic, like it, that performance just blows up and becomes its own weird thing. Man, Donald Pleasance, you're great. Being, I would say be in more movies, but you've been dead for several years famously. So maybe not. But maybe I need to go back and watch some more Donald Pleasance movies. Maybe that's what needs to happen. I would agree with that. He's he's easily the best part of the later Halloween movies because the later Halloween movies are bad. Yeah, here's the thing. I recently learned that he kept being in that franchise far longer than literally anyone else agreed to be a part of that franchise. Like he kept doing those movies. Yeah, and I'm not sure why. He certainly didn't need to. Uh, no. But... I mean, maybe he did. Maybe he made a bunch of bad fi- maybe he was in a Nicolas Cage space where he made a bunch of bad financial decisions. Hmm. Maybe, but at the same time, he's a great actor and he improves those movies marginally. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I, I'd recommend it. You should watch the whole Halloween franchise anyway. So one of these days, I will do that. So, I really, I really loved the first Halloween, which is the only Halloween film I've seen. Uh, I really enjoyed that film. So, I mean, honestly, I'm the the thing that really chills me about that franchise is how bad I've heard they get after the third one. But knowing that Pleasance is in them, at least I'll have someone I'll, I'll have someone to latch on to there. Uh, so funny story, they originally offered him the role of Van Helsing in this movie. And he said, well, no, because I just did this movie last year called Halloween, where I played this guy named Loomis. And it's like the same role. And I don't want to do that again. So could I be this other guy? Because I can make some big choices in that role. And so they're like, yeah, Don, sure, you can you can. And so he took that role instead. And to all of our benefits, really, because he's great. Oh yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's the uh, for you Leslie Vernon fans out there. He's the Ahab character. Stephen doesn't get that reference, but hopefully I you don't. I don't. I'm I'm staring. Stephen Fox, were they nodding politely? Yeah, don't um, worry. You should watch that too. You got enough context for it now. You would absolutely love that movie. We're gonna cover it on this podcast at some point, so maybe I will. Maybe I'll wait till we cover it. I don't know. Because that's another one where, you know, they, they wanted to make more of those movies. Well, yeah. Yeah, they, and you get a sequel hook at the end like every other slasher movie. So <clears throat> they definitely did. So, yeah. But I, um, but no, and so to get to play the great Abraham Van Helsing, you get one of the greatest legends of British stage and screen, Sir Lawrence Olivier, who I think is doing incredible work. Um just, I mean, it's always great to see Sir Larry show up, but this is kind of in his late career phase where he's making a lot of decisions based on his health and his need to have money for treatments and for his family when he passes away. Um, so, but this actually, him being in this movie really legitimizes horror for some really legitimate actors. And they're like, well, if Sir Larry will do it, maybe this is something that we should all be considering. So this legitimizes the horror genre for a lot of actors um, because Lawrence Olivier does Dracula. And that's great, despite not really being able to understand Mr. Olivier for half this movie. Yeah, he is He is doing the accent, uh, and he's doing, because he's Olivier, he's doing the traditional accent, and he's doing it correctly. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, I watch it with subtitles on, so I didn't have a problem. But I, if you didn't, then, yeah, you probably had an issue uh, understanding poor, poor Sir Olivier. And I mean, at this point, he's... He's had cancer for several years. I mean, for the last like decade and a half, maybe of his life, maybe longer. 
um, the man's fighting a cancer diagnosis. So all of those late period Olivier films, um, including but not limited to future episode of this podcast, Clash of the Titans, um, the Marathon Man, I believe is what it's called. That's the Is It Safe? Where he's playing. Um, now I have to look it up and make sure I'm getting that. Yes, Marathon Man, where he's playing the Nazi doctor. Is it safe? Is it safe? Um, Brett? Is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? Um, yeah, let's not do that anymore. Uh, but, you know, The Boys from Brazil, which is a, a suitably weird little movie. Uh, the Jazz Singer. Like, he's doing all these movies late in his career, basically for the money. So this is a, a classic Olivier Paycheck role. Um, but he he's still, he's not like mailing in his performance. Like he's delivering a legitimate performance here. The one request that he makes uh, is that he be killed off so that if there are sequels to this movie, he's not in them or any under any contractual obligation to be in them. Because as far as he knew, he might not live to see the release of this film. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's very, very sick at the time. You can kind of see just in how gaunt his face is. Like his face is very, very thin. Um, but yeah, during this period of time, he's just, he's taking the roles for the paycheck. But for a good reason. Like, it's yeah. not like your regular run-of-the-mill celebrity taking it for the paycheck. Just I mean, like- this is not this is not a Bruce Willis or Nicolas Cage paycheck movie at all. No, I mean, this this he's still operating in movies that are actually pretty good and pretty iconic if not for just him being in them really i mean this is kind of a forgotten relic of an era so maybe this one doesn't count but at the time it made enough of an impact to again legitimize the horror genre for these classically trained actors who pretty much wrote it off as fluff for for the better for the better so good on him cheers to you yeah cheers for you sir larry my favorite Sir Lawrence Olivier story, I'll just tell this real quick, because when else am I going to get a chance to tell a Lawrence Olivier story? Maybe on Clash of the Titans, but I'll, I'll retell it then because it's a great story. Um, but on the set of Marathon Man, uh, Dustin Hoffman shows up and it's during one of their you know torture scenes where Hoffman's character has been like sleep deprived and all this stuff. And so Hoffman, being a, a method actor, is recounting all this to Lo- all the his prep work to, to Lawrence Olivier. Just, you know, I, I haven't slept in two days and I've just been drinking coffee pretty steadily just to, so I can get my nerves at the place where they need to be. And da 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 da. And Olivier kind of listens to all this, just nods along. And when he's done, he goes, Dear Lord, boy, in my day, we just called it acting. <laughs> and I love that story. It's the best Lawrence Olivier. It's the most famous Lawrence Olivier story, but it's great. And I love it. And Lawrence Olivier is a treasure. Rest in peace, Sir Lawrence. R.I.P. But yeah, you you were not as fond of him just because of the accent work. But I just I don't know. I love I love seeing Lawrence every time he shows up. I really do. Yeah, I I don't know. I've just I've grown up with a more charismatic Van Helsing. I guess is the way you want to put it. Just like a more in your face, a more like we're gonna get this vampire, we're gonna we're gonna kill this thing. And see, I think he's I think he's bringing a suitable amount of um, not menace, but of urgency to the role. I just, you know, he's. I don't know, I, I, I believe that he's every bit as urgent about trying to catch it and trying to capture it without being, you know, the Anthony Hopkins manic, crazy Ben Helsing. Or to a lesser extent, the Hugh Jackman one. <laughs> 
to a much lesser extent than you, Jack. <laughs> Speaking of future episodes of this podcast, we will 100% be covering Van Helsing one of these yeah, days. Future episodes. Honestly, we could have probably done a whole month just on Universal attempts at revitalizing their horror brand because there have been, we could probably still do that. There have been several attempts at reviving the Universal horror franchise. Yeah. Which is weird. They're like it Most of them have been bad and unsuccessful. Pretty much all of them have, haven't they? I mean, is is one successful one, but they didn't they didn't parlay it as they should have. Uh, the Brennan Fraser Mummy. Right. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. There have been of the multiple attempts. There have been every single one has started with either a Dracula movie or a Mummy movie, except for the Joe Johnston Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro. That's the one time they didn't start with one of those two monsters. Um, Why not start with Frankenstein's monster? I don't know, but there you go. There's just some really bad choices. I I get the impression that Universal doesn't really understand what they're doing with these. Anymore, I would say so. I mean, the Dark Universe is definitely a cart before the horse. We will talk about the Dark Universe one of these days, don't get me wrong. But that's that's the mistake of the modern franchise machine where you're putting the cart before the horse. Like, we want a franchise, so we're going to set up five movies, that all of which you'd much rather be watching than the movie you're watching right now. And that's that's the Marvel model, unfortunately. And it's one thing that Marvel has managed to do successfully, still making you enjoy the movie you're watching while looking forward to the next 10 they have coming out. Um, but yeah, not everyone is able to pull that off because not every producer is Kevin Feige. Well, I, and I think that's, that's gotta be what fans are realizing, what studios are hopefully realizing is that Marvel is more of a lightning in a bottle situation than anyone had considered. Like it it takes a very specific set of circumstances, um, to quote Liam Neeson, a very specific set of skills to pull it off. Yeah. it, It seems easy. On like on paper, it's just like you write a movie that's good to see, and you get a franchise out of it. Mm-hmm. But it, it is absolutely not that at all. Well, but and the, that's that's the problem. Is yes, it, logic dictates you write you put out a movie that people want to see, and then you get a franchise off of it. People are saying we want a franchise, so we have to make movies that feed into that franchise, regardless of whether or not people want to see them. And honestly, that's the reason this podcast exists is because there have been a lot of instances. And I would say more of them post 2012 with the Avengers than before. But you get this idea of, well, we have to make a franchise. So we have to think 10 movies down the road. Whereas let's not focus on making this movie good. Let's focus on making this movie into 10 more movies. And that's the mistake I would say they make. And I mean, that's certainly the mistake of the mummy, which again, we will talk about one of these days. Yeah. Which is a shame, really. I was really excited for the Dark Universe. You and me both. I think we were like two of the only people that were really excited for that. Um, like, I wanted it so desperately to be good, and then it predictably was bad. Um, but again, we'll talk. We'll talk all about how poorly handled that that potential franchise was. Again, one of the we'll have to do that one as a milestone. There's too much to talk about not to. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll get there for sure we will get there. Um, yes. Yeah, so Dracula, I mean, um, I thought this movie looked beautiful. Like there's some amazing cinematography. 
The sets are incredible. The costumes are, with the exception of Dracula's, kind of great because Dracula's is literally just an open puffy shirt and slacks. Um, that's that's all Frank Langella is rocking in this. Um, Frank Langella, by the way, don't great. forget the cape, Stephen. I how could I possibly forget the cape, Brett? Um, but I mean, there's there's some really stark imagery, which is what I really liked about this movie. Yeah, same, honest. That's one of the. <clears throat> <clears throat> same honestly that's one of the things i actually liked about this movie it, i may not have liked the movie as a whole but i definitely appreciated the cinematography there was there's some really good stuff in here the shot when uh when lucy is walking into the castle and there's the shot through the spider web mm-hmm. and, like, the spider is slowly like approaching her like that's so good it's you know it's it's kind of goofy in a way but at the same time it's like that's, that's a really good that's a really good shot well, again, it's the, the goofiness and the campiness of it is really what makes it feel a lot like a universal horror movie because those are goofy and campy um, because you're making these – that's what people found scary. Whereas nowadays we look back on it and it's it's not. It's theatrical and it's campy and it's goofy. Um, and I think so, that's one of the problems with Universal not really understanding what they're doing with the, the Universal Monsters franchise is they, they're trying to fit – a round peg in a square hole and vice versa and vice versa people aren't afraid of monsters anymore you got to do something different yeah which is uh, honestly i think the the smartest thing they could have done was hand the franchise over to blum blumhouse and the this year's invisible man i thought was really good uh that was the last movie i saw in the movie theater the last movie i will probably ever see in a movie theater um but let's not get hasty now (laughs) Hold on. We'll, we'll we'll talk about the 20 what what movies are like in 2020 next week i'm sure um but the just i don't know the, the i liked that movie a lot i thought the way that they the direction they took that character the things that they wanted to say with that film i thought were fantastic um i really liked it it's one of my favorite movies of the year so far um and i saw that back in february so i mean it's got some staying power it's a, it's legitimately a very good film. It's on HBO Max right now. So if you have access to that service, uh, check it out because it's real good. I really do need to do that. I didn't know it was on HBO Max. So I will yeah. check that out. Absolutely. Uh, at least I think it was last time I was looking at the web or at that uh, site the other day. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I so I think handing it off to Blumhouse was smart. Um, not that Blumhouse has a perfect track record with franchises. Uh, see this year's Fantasy Island. Uh, but I think he knows how to handle scary and perhaps recontextualize those characters for a 21st century audience. Yeah. Because you're right. That is ultimately what it comes down to is what scared people in the 30s is not what scares people in the 2010s or 2020s now. Yeah. Uh, you you got you to gotta give them a new and fresh twist, which seems to be what Invisible Man did. Uh, and it, Blumhouse, while they, while they haven't really been the greatest with franchises, they're still, I would say they're still like the, I don't know, do I want to say gold standard of horror right now? Maybe. They're the ones doing it better than just about anyone else with their low budget, high box office kind of turnaround. That is one part of Universal that seems to be doing fairly well at this point. Yeah, they're they're... More more often than not, knocking it out of the park or yeah. wise lately. So, you know, give it just, you know what, Universal, just give it all to Blumhouse. Let them do it. 
which again, it seems like that's what they're doing now. And they're not also worrying about a franchise. They're just worrying about making good movies and telling good stories, which that's how you build a franchise. But again, I don't, I don't think franchise is what's on the table for that right now, but at least they've given that property to someone who knows what to do with it. Yeah. For, for the better, it seems. Yeah. Which, so I'm excited to, uh, if again, if movies ever get made again, I'm excited to, uh, see what the future holds for the universal monsters in Blumhouse and Jason Blum's very capable hands. So. Look, at the very uh, least, we still have drive-in theaters. So, Yeah, that's true, um, which is how we'll see the movie we're watching next week. But I'm putting the cart way ahead of the horse because we are nowhere near that yet. Uh, let's talk about the release of this movie. Uh, we already talked about the box office a little bit. Um, very disappointing. 35th highest grossing film of the year. Um, so not particularly... Um, uh, not as financially viable as they were hoping. And so therefore not really one for a sequel, uh, even though they did set one up um, the, the Cape of Dracula flying off into the sunrise rising sun. Uh, it's daylight outside when the Cape goes fluttering off. Um, and it's a cool effect, but yeah, you get the idea that these two lovers will not be kept uh, apart for very long. Uh, Mina looks wistfully at the flying Cape as it flutters away. Uh, and smiles so but Which, yeah, that's, that's the weird choice that's another thing let me touch on this real quick that i was sure. confused about is jonathan's kind of a dick in this movie uh so i don't really were they intentionally trying to make dracula a pseudo good guy in this yes. movie i can almost guarantee you yes that is exactly what they were trying to do um, the subtitle for this one was a love story. And that's literally, they were trying to make this a Gothic romance. Um, those I guess had some popularity at the time. Um, uh, but no, that's a hundred percent what they were trying to do with this movie. Uh, so Dracula is the, the romantic hero basically for this, for good or ill. I would say for ill. Um, you can't really, you can't make Dracula the hero of this story you can make dracula a hero in a story but you can't make dracula a hero in this story not at least not the way that they're framing it because otherwise otherwise van helsing's the bad guy uh well and, but yeah and that's kind of where it is like you you and that i think is probably one of the problems inherent in the movie is you don't know quite who to root for at any given point yeah um, that's that's really what i'm getting at is you don't know who to root for except Except Jonathan's a dick. He's just, he's not, he tries to redeem it in like the last half. Or maybe the unsuccessfully, last, I would say. Like, yeah. The last like quarter of the movie, but sure. like he's gone for a good quarter of the movie fight. At his funeral. Yep. Correct. And he's, he's an ass. Yeah. Why, why are you, you supposed to like this guy? No, you're not. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Again, it's kind of, uh, but again, that's not the love story they want you to be invested in. They want you to be invested in the uh, Dracula romance, um, which is why you have that really psychedelic looking um, love scene, like about halfway through the movie, with against that kind of and stuff that was that was something that happened in that movie that's for that sure. was great i thought that was a lot of fun i know you inherently disagree with me on that but that is i thought great 
Look, it um, was the 70s. He had just got done doing Saturday Night Fever. I'm not going to get mad at the guy. I mean, and again, that's kind of that was there's precedent for that being like a device that, that honestly feels a lot like the beginning of Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, I mean, this is the late 70s. A lot of people are making movies where this is kind of a set piece. So it it happens, man. Like they, they're making a, a movie, trying to make a movie that will appeal to people at the time, uh, which uh, as you and I being people who are not alive at that time, we're not going to understand that very much. Yeah, um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna hold that against the movie. There's plenty of other things to not like here. I'm not gonna hold that against it. Uh, yeah. So you weren't a fan of that weird car chase? There's a car chase in this movie. No, I was not a fan of that car chase. But look, by the time that car chase happens, I had given up on caring about this movie. I was. <laughs> I was just on board. I was like, "This is ridiculous." This. I'm just. I'm having fun now because. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm just going to be way too mad. So I'm, you know, I spent the better part of this movie trying to figure out why the film chose to set itself in Edwardian England versus Victorian England, where the original story is set. And it's a difference of only a, a handful of years, but still, like this is 1912 as opposed to the 1880s. Um, and then there's the car chase, and I'm like, oh, is that why? Like literally, the car chase is the the moment where I went. This is probably why we waited another 20 years for this movie. Or for the setting, because it otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Because I mean, you could have just done that same scene with two carriages, or you know, like why did I mean, it have to be a car? It's it's a very British car chase scene, though. I mean, it's not like there's it, it, you know lots of sceneries, lots of vistas. Again, it's a it's a kind of a motor car, like a Mister Toad style motor car chasing down a, a horse drawn carriage. So. I mean, there's not a lot of, you know, high. It's not like The Driver or uh, any one of the movies that drive Baby Driver. I mean, we're not like talking about a, a white knuckle. Oh, my gosh. High suspense car chase. It's it's just a car chase and a buggy, but it's in there. It's a thing that happens in this movie. Yeah, sure. Um, The thermometer score on this film is... uh. Uh, 59%, which is uh, enough for the green squishy icon. Uh, whereas Metacritic, the score is much higher. It's a 67 on Metacritic. Uh, generally favorable reviews on Metacritic, which is interesting. Um, and then on uh, Letterboxd, it gets a 3.2. So I think we can safely call the the consensus on this one mixed at best. Yeah, I'm honestly surprised. Although... Honestly, knowing what I know of the, the the various fandoms involved here, the you know the internet and how it tends to work, I would not be surprised if this has become like a posthumous cult hit that people just love to watch and laugh at, uh, and ironically say that it's great. Here's uh, the thing, though: I unironically think this movie's pretty good. Well, okay. Some there's are, there some, is, some there's enough here for me to sink my teeth into that I'm like, you know what? Okay. Was I disagree? Sure. I, uh, what, uh, I was just going to ask what what your uh, what your star rating for this movie was. So I, I fall below the average there. I gave it a two and a half. Two and a half. Wow. Um, whereas I I come right in line with the average. I, I gave it three. So I liked it just a smidge better than you did, but I, I had fun. I thought there was more good than bad. 
Uh, I'm not going to tell you that it's a great movie or that it's, you know, the best adaptation of Dracula, but I had a good time, man. Yeah. And I look, I like it better than Baywatch. I like it better than Mario. So, I mean, there's that. It's not, it's not the bottom of the barrel bad. Yeah. Uh, Which, Hey, I'm glad to hear. Yeah. Look, it's, there's, like I said, because the last time we discussed this movie, I, I did not think you were going that high. No, I've, I've reassessed it. Uh, and yeah, it's there's stuff here. And I was having fun by the end of it. I, I decided to stop caring so much by by like probably the three quarter mark into the movie. Uh, sure. Let's just have some fun. Uh, it's it's not that deep. Um and then you know the cinematography is good. Yeah. Uh so you know, there's there's good there's there's decent stuff here. I'm not gonna hate it. But you're also okay with it not getting a franchise, the franchise that it was clearly after. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't we don't we don't need a franchise out of this Dracula. Yeah. Whereas I'm honestly I probably fall in the same I'm okay with it not being a franchise I get why Universal wanted it to be certainly mostly money but like I'm okay with it just being what it is and being this kind of weird late 70s relic I'm okay with that too yeah which seems to apparently be looked back on fondly so good yeah, for it. I, I like I mean some some yes some no so again mixed at best are these reviews well I guess that would be my opinion as well I am also mixed at best. Well, there you go. So, I mean, uh, Brett, anything else that you want to say about, let me look at my notes here, but I think, I think we're ready for our final thoughts on 1979's Dracula. Let's put this guy back in his coffin. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was fine. It's, it's, it's good. It's fun. Uh, I will probably watch it again at some point and be perfectly happy to do so. Uh, will it be the movie I go back to annually? No, but yeah, it's fun. It's not the best adaptation of Dracula, um, but it's all right. I had a good time. Well, no, that, that's the thing. Like, it's not a hard watch. You know, if this if this was on TV, I wouldn't turn it off. Like, it's you know, I'd, I'd sit down and watch this and be fine. It's yeah, not, I don't actively hate it. I guess pretty engaging. I, less than two hours. Like I would say, I'm ambivalent towards it. It's just kind of fine. Me. Yeah. Whereas, you know, it it's it's not bad. There there have been worse movies made. Um I haven't seen Love at First Bite yet, but when we watch that movie, um we're definitely going to compare the two. I will say it is my second favorite vampire or fec- second favorite Dracula film from 1979 after Nosferatu the Vampire, which is Chef's Kiss great. Um but yeah, no, it's it's pretty good. I would recommend it if you are questioning whether or not you should watch it, particularly during this month of horror. This month of spook, I would definitely say go ahead and give it a watch. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I would say why not? You know, they do something different. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, um, Brett, what are we uh, what are we watching next week? So next week we're gonna we're gonna do a little crossover. We're gonna do superhero. We're gonna do horror. We're gonna do twenty uh, twenties new mutants. And we're gonna talk about the state of Hollywood and movies in this dark timeline that we live in uh so that'll be fun and uh we'll be hitting the drive-in between now and then for sure uh to check that one out so um yeah so tune in next week we're excited for that one uh in the meantime you can uh, and that'll be the end of our uh october spookython 
that's that's the last one because what we've done we're both done five horror movies this month which is great um but in the meantime you can check us out on the social medias uh we can be reached at disenfranchpod on uh, twitter and on Le- uh not on letterboxd just on twitter i mean i'm gonna take that again in the meantime you can find us on social media we are at disenfranchpod on twitter uh, I am also on Twitter and on Letterboxd at Chewy Walrus. Brett, where can we find you on the social medias? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Gunslinger Fire. And remember all those various hashtags that were uh, shooting at Brett. You don't know who. Uh, you don't know vampires. All that good stuff. Uh, you don't know the Twilight. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, at any rate, that's all for this week. Join us next week for 2020's New Mutants. Uh, until then, I'm Stephen Foxworthy for Brett Wright and myself. Hashtag no more fandoms. Well said, fellas. <laughs>